we're going to be talking about relationships today and um, the fact that in relationships sometimes, occasionally, there's, there's tension, there's, there's dispute, there's even sin. Uh, and what do you do? How do you, how do you deal with that? Now, of course, when we talk about relationships, there are the, there are the people who are really close to us and the, the people that we, we love. And, and then there are kind of the people that we don't know, even strangers. And when, when people sin against us, the impact of that sin often has to do with uh, how it affects us with how close we are to them. So for instance, years ago when my wife and I first got married and we were living in Milwaukee, Oregon, and I uh, had a job working for a company. I got, had a company car. So the great thing about a company car is, you know, you, you, don't, you just park wherever you want in a parking lot. You don't worry about who you park next to and, and uh, any of that kind of stuff. And I was driving down the road one day in Milwaukee. And uh, I, I think it was, uh, it was over by Old Clackamas High School. And I'm, I'm driving by there. And I notice this guy in the rearview mirror coming up really fast. And then he gets right on my tail, like right, right there. Now, I don't know what you do when you're driving down the road and somebody comes up really fast and they're just really speeding and they get right on your tail. Like, I don't, I don't know what you do. I like to check the speed limit because I'm almost assuredly going a little bit too fast, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you guys, last night, everyone just sat there like, what? I don't... So, anyway, <laughs> you guys had breakfast and coffee, so I... So I had to slow down a little bit just to be legal. I, you know, I just wanted to be legal. And my daughter's back there just laughing. <laughs> She's like, oh wait, what, you were driving the speed limit? So that's another confession. But I, so I slowed down a little bit. And of course, <clears throat> he didn't back off. He got even closer and he's kind of flashing his lights. I just driving on a surface street. And this guy is just, I could see him. There's see people in the rearview mirror and he's like, I don't know what's going on, but he is in a hurry. And there's nowhere, there's nowhere to go. There's just two lanes and there's tons of traffic. It's, you know, it's nowhere for him to go. And I needed to make a left turn anyway, so I couldn't get out of that lane. And so he switched lanes. He thought he was going to get around me. But as soon as he switched lanes, somebody pulled over in front of him. And you could just see like steam coming out the window. And he's really upset. And then we pulled up to a stoplight. Here's a couple cars behind me in the lane to the right of me, and I just looked in my rearview mirror and noticed he was getting out of his car, <clears throat> which is, right, it's not typically a good sign. So he's getting out of his car at the stoplight, and he's marching up, and he gets right, so he's, he gets right up to my um, passenger window on that side, and I... I can't, of course, I'm rolling the windows up as <laughs> he's coming, making sure the doors are locked. And he gets up and he's like yelling at me. And, I'm, and I'm, I got the stereo on, so I can't really hear him, probably just as well, because I can lip read at least good enough to know kind of what he was saying. And he was yelling at me and he was waving at me, but he didn't have all his fingers up and he's yelling. And there was something about it. And of course, everybody is like just looking and, you know, kids are looking and I, I don't know what my reaction was. I just started laughing. I just, I don't. And apparently I thought, well, maybe it'll break the tension, but it didn't. It made him more mad. So he kind of reached over towards the front of the car, made a fist and punched my windshield. Now at this point, I'm really laughing. It's not even my car. I don't, you know, you're not going to, right? It's not even that deal with my boss. And so he's punches the windshield, he punches it, and he's like, ah, and he punches it, and he's like, ah, and he punches it, and then the light turns green. 
and everyone starts going and I start driving off and I couldn't help it. I was like, bye. And he's <laughs> stuck in the intersection there. And you know, it was just, I drove off. I went home. I remember telling my wife laughing and yeah, I happen to remember it this week, but I didn't. The thing is, I, it is, is, Amazing as the situation was, it wasn't traumatic for me. I, I didn't need counseling. It didn't uh, wound my inner person or any of that stuff. And, uh, and I've never seen the person again. Hopefully it's not you, right? <laughs> now I found the guy. So, See, here's the thing I find. Like when a stranger uh, assaults you, when a stranger sins against you, um, it doesn't really hurt you the way it does when it's somebody you know and love very dearly, Right? And that's one of the reasons that relationships are so, so, so tricky because the people who are closest to you, you know, they're, they're sinners. They, 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 they're not perfect. They make mistakes. And, and when they sin against you, it often wounds you deeply. It, it hurts. And if you don't deal with it, it will build up to a toxic level and it will destroy your relationship and it may destroy you and your attitude in the process. In, in meaningful relationships, and I hope you don't find this like new information, there will be disagreements, there will be misunderstandings, and there will be sin. The people closest to you at times, it won't even be a misunderstanding. They will sin against you because they're not perfect. Your spouse, your siblings, your family, your friends, people in your grow group. So how do you respond? What do you do with that? How do you move forward in a healthy way and avoid bitterness and anger and, and, and dysfunction and division, which is oftentimes where these things go? And it's so important that Jesus addresses the subject in a very, very practical terms. And that's where we are in chapter 17, and he's going to start with this. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to dealing with this stuff, you have to pay attention to yourself. It's always good to start with yourself. In verse 17, chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He said to them, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone, a millstone was a large stone that was used for a grinding mill. And he said it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So pay attention to yourselves. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for our time together this morning in worshiping you, remembering how great you are, what your son has done for us on the cross, and the fact that he's risen from the dead, and, and, and in doing so has brought us to life as well. My prayer this morning is that your spirit will speak to our hearts, that you will help us to see what you have prepared for us this morning. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. So he's going to talk about sin here. He's talking about sin within relationships. That word sin simply means to miss the mark. In other words, God has a, a mark, a goal, a target for us in our life, in all areas of our life, relationally as well. And when we sin, it's when we miss the mark. And there's a lot of ways that we do it relationally. We can miss the mark with the words that we use. We can sin with our words. We can sin in our actions and our reactions. We can sin uh, in what we call sins of commission, 
when we do things that uh, we shouldn't do, sense of omission when we don't do things that we should do. And Jesus tells us several things here as he begins to talk about this topic. One of the things he says is don't give in to temptation because we're all going to be tempted in this life. It's the way it goes. Now, a temptation is different from a sin. A sin is to miss the mark. But a temptation is, is different. In fact, the word temptation in the Greek usually means uh, a trap or bait. So it's not actually sin, but it's a, it's a bait to sin. It's a, it's a trap to sin. So you might be tempted to gossip, but being tempted to gossip isn't, isn't sin. Gossiping is sin. You might be tempted to lie. You might be tempted to steal. That's what he's talking about here. It's a temptation. You're going along and you're, you're tempted in a relationship as a context to sin. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we will ever be tempted, which is an amazing thought when you think about it. Like every temptation you will ever face, Jesus faced that, but he never gave in. He, he never sinned. He defeated every single temptation. So temptation will come. It's not if, it's when, and you don't have to give in to it. But here's the other thing that he says. Now he's talking relationally. Don't be the one who tempts others to sin. So in other words, we're all gonna be tempted in life, but make sure you're not the person tempting the people around you to sin. He says, but woe to the one through whom they come. And he talks about little ones here, and, and he's probably not talking about young children. He's not talking about physical age. He's talking about new Christians, uh, immature Christians, Christians who are just starting to grow up in their faith. And he says, woe to any of you who would tempt somebody who's new in their faith to sin. So he says, pay attention to yourselves and don't lead others into sin, which, which made me think a little bit about that. Like, how do we do that? In what ways might we tempt people to sin? And of course, there's a multitude of ways you might tempt people around you to sin uh, in terms of false doctrine. If you, if you say things about the Bible that are not true, if you say things, assert things about God, about the gospel that are not true, you're tempting that person around you, it could be your kids, your mate, your friends, to believe something that's not true, which will always lead to sin. It could be entertainment. Like, is it possible that you have tempted people around you to watch things that they should not watch? It will, it will enter them into sin. Or to listen to, to music that they shouldn't listen to. I'm, I'm always still a little bit surprised when I first came to Gateway 22 years ago, I, I found it interesting. Nobody in our church would ever suggest to me, they would never say, Pastor, you should, you should watch this movie or you should listen to this song. They would, no one would ever do that because they were just afraid. Like, you know, what if there was something in there they didn't pick up on? Now, it's always amazing to me. People say, have you seen this show? Have you, have you listened to this music? And I'll maybe watch five minutes of the show and think, what in the world? Are people watching this stuff? Are you tempting people to sin? through encouraging them to make certain entertainment choices. For those of you who are single and dating, right, he says, be sure that you don't tempt that other person to sin. Don't do that. Don't tempt other people to sin at, through the words that you speak by encouraging them to say certain words are okay. Uh, through finances, don't, don't tempt people to gossip or to lie or to deceive. Now the question becomes, what if I've done that? What if I've tempted someone to sin? And looking ahead, in the passage, I just say this. If, as you recognize it, you repent. You stop doing it. You, you apologize to the person. You ask for forgiveness. So pay attention to yourself relationally. That's where he starts. Start with you. Now, he moves on and he says this. 
When it comes to relationships and sin, always do your part. This is where it starts to get difficult. Verse 3, second half. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke him. And if he or she repents, forgive them. And if he sins against you, here's where it gets super fun, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. Notice he says, you, you what? Must. So this is not an option. It's not like, well, you, I, no, you must forgive. So let's, let's break this down. If your brother or sister sins against you, so a sin is to miss the mark according to God's word, not your word. Right, so some of us set up standards. So let's talk about this. Like, first of all, a, a quirk is not a sin. Right, how many of you are married to a quirky person? Just raise your hand. Okay, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> we're all... All right, hugging the person next to you is not going to cut it, all right? They, they know what you mean. So a quirk, though, is not a sin, Right, so for instance, I, so I had the privilege a couple of days ago of being in Starbucks and I was meeting with someone or trying to meet and have a conversation and there was a lady across like on the other side of Starbucks and she was in a phone conversation and she's a loud talker. Oh man, is she. So if you've ever been in a room and someone's on the phone and you can't even concentrate because they're talking so loud, just like super loud on the phone and I know all about her intestinal issues now, like, oh. Right? And then I'm like, well, she's just a loud talker on the phone. And then she got off the phone and a friend came and sat down and no, she's a loud talker all the time, right? So maybe you know a loud talker. And that's not, so that's not a sin to repent of, but it is a quirk. It is annoying. Or maybe you have someone in your house, like, I don't know, like maybe I do in my house. I'm not saying I do, but maybe I do, who sets their alarm like a half hour before they need to get up. And then their, their, their alarm goes off and they hit the snooze, but now you're wide awake. So let me just say this, it's not my wife. It's not my wife. But uh, let's say that um, you got the alarm and the alarm goes off and she turns the alarm off. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, she's looking at me. <clears throat> she hits the alarm and she goes right back to sleep, but now I'm wide awake. And then it goes off again and again and again, I've let go of it. I'm not, right, but, so again, that's not, a, that's not a sin. It's getting close, but it's not a sin. It's a quirk, it's a quirk. Or maybe, and this is one I'm really getting clued into now, and it's driving me crazy. People who incessantly use certain words, four in particular, okay, right, so, and like. These are... People who use these, the word okay. So I'm listening to a debating blogcast right now on theology, and one of the guys in there uses the word okay incessantly. Okay? 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 Which drives me crazy. Or how about the word right? You know anybody who ends every sentence with the word right? So I was like driving down the road, right? And um, I was thinking to myself, right? Uh, I should really make a right-hand turn to go to Starbucks, right? So people use the word right at the end of a sentence. Or people who start sentences with the word so. I'm, I'm sorry to do this because once I tell you this, you're just not going to be able to have a conversation with anyone again. But people start conversations with the word so. It might be somebody you haven't seen for three months or talked to. And you run across them at Starbucks and they walk up and they go, so, anyways, right? Uh, and so you have this <laughs> conversation. So, but the worst one is the use of the word like. 
Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> so like I was like driving down like the road the other day and like there was a truck like coming the other way and it like threw a rock and it like hit me in the head and I like went unconscious and none of that actually happened. It was just something like that. It's right. People use the word like all the time, right? <laughs> so, uh... See what I mean? It's just going to go downhill from here. It's <laughs> terrible. I have all these notes. Don't say like. Don't say so. That's a quirk. It's a little annoying, but it's a quirk. It's not a sin. They don't, you, know, you don't have to go up and tell them to repent. Or some of you who use your vehicles as trash cans. I'm just saying, sometimes I walk through the parking lot between services, I look in your car, and I think to myself, if there's ever some kind of natural disaster and everyone is stuck in their cars for a few weeks, I want to be with you because there is enough food in your car to last. Granted, it's all half eaten, but after a few weeks, I don't know that it matters. Or people who answer every text with LOL. Every text. Now, these are not sins to be repented of. It's hard to say that. It's, right? But a quirk is not a sin, and a mistake is not a sin. Spilling your milk is not a sin. Losing your keys is not a sin. It's annoying, but it's not a sin. Leaving the toilet seat up is not a sin. And I'm even willing, I'm going to make a concession. Now, this really made some people mad last night, but I'm trying to meet you halfway. I would be willing to say that liking a cat is a mistake. Do you see what I did? I'm trying to meet you halfway, all right? I didn't call it a sin. It's just a mistake, right? So Jesus is telling us a couple things here. <laughs> Getting serious, all right? First of all, he says, we need to rebuke those who sin. We need to rebuke them. Now, the word rebuke is a strong word. It means to admonish, to point out. It means to correct. It means to sit down, have a conversation. So you don't talk about them. You talk to them. How many times has someone sinned against you and you talked about them and talked about them and talked about them, but you didn't talk to them? Jesus says you talk to them, you rebuke them. You don't gossip about them, you don't avoid them, you don't go passive-aggressive on them, you don't ignore them. You talk to them. Now, you obviously need to talk to God first, get some wisdom, get some perspective. You might need to talk to a, a wise, mature Christian to help you get ready for that. But then you talk with them. You meet with them face-to-face. -face. You don't send an email, a text, a voicemail, Snapchat. Right? You don't do that. You sit down with them. You be humble. You make sure that you remember that, that your standing with God is based solely on his grace. You remember that. You, you're humble. You affirm your love for them. If you can't sit down and affirm genuinely your love for them, then you need to get that straight. You spell out how they sinned against you, very simply. You could talk about how it impacted you, how it, how it hurt your relationship. You invite them to repent. You invite the grace of God into the relationship putting Jesus at the center. Now I know that that can be very difficult. There are a lot of potential obstacles to doing this. Maybe you fear confrontation. I understand that. Maybe you have an incessant need to be liked and you just don't want to be that person. Maybe you're afraid about how they might respond. But you know, I met people uh, who have been sinned against over the years, again and again and again by the same person. And sometimes I see people who just, they get to a point where they ignore it, 
in the name of love, but you understand that that's not loving. That's not loving when it's not helpful for the other person. When they've got an issue and you just, you just ignore it. And it's not good for you either because it, what it tends to do is it tends to build resentment in you. It tends to build bitterness and even apathy. And this is always what's so disturbing for me as a pastor when I'm with someone, especially if they're in a marriage and they say, you know, my spouse keeps sinning and sinning and sometimes they're bitter and they're antagonized. But what really worries me is when they just get apathetic and say, well, I don't even care anymore. It doesn't even matter. They're never going to change this really breaks the heart of God because it's, it's terrible for your relationship. If you love someone, you will deal with that sin. See, God rebukes us because he loves us and wants us to grow and wants us to be blessed. That's what we do for each other. So you rebuke those who sin and then you forgive those who repent. That's the next thing he says. If they repent, then you forgive them. Now the word repent means to change your thinking. And when you change someone's thinking, that always changes their behavior. That's a little bit different than a lot of times what we, what we think. What we think is, well, if I can, I just need to change my behavior. And that's what religion usually does. Just change your behavior. But what Christ wants to do is change your heart. He wants to change your mind. He wants to change your thinking. When you change someone's thinking, you always change their behavior. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not getting caught. Repentance is coming clean. It's confessing the things that people don't even know. Repentance is not downplaying your sin. It's not saying, well, it's not a big deal. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, it could have been worse. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing your thinking. Repentance isn't shifting the blame. Well, I did it because you made me angry. The devil made me do it. I was tired. My dad never hugged me. You know, that kind of stuff. Right? Uh, and then, uh, sorry, I had to do that. Repentance is hating the sin. Repentance is hating the sin, not just the consequences. Not, well, I hate that I got caught, or I hate that I went to jail, or I hate that I lost my job. Instead, it's I hate that I offended God. I hate that I hurt someone who, so, who means so much to me. I hate that I lied. I hate that I stole. I hate that I got abusive. And what Jesus says here is if someone sins and repents, you must forgive them. You must and to forgive here means simply to send away or to lay aside or to forsake. So you just, you let it go. That's what forgiveness is. You let it go. What they owe you is gone. Now forgiveness isn't ignoring the sins of others, downplaying the sins of others, approving the sins of others. Forgiveness is eyes wide open, knowing the truth, choosing to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't demand instant trust. And sometimes we get this confused. Forgiveness and trust are two different issues. Where things get really confusing is when we make them one. Jesus says you must forgive. He doesn't say you must instantly trust them. Like if you stole money from me and you repented, I may not immediately give you my ATM password. It might take a little while because I forgive you, but it doesn't mean I have to trust you yet. Trust has to be earned. If you commit violence against me, I can forgive you, but I may not want to be alone with you in a room for a while. If you lie to me, I might want to do some fact-checking for a while. That doesn't mean that I don't forgive you, but it means that we need to rebuild trust. 
Forgiveness doesn't always remove the consequences of sin. I told you a few months ago about that church that I was interning in when I was in, in college and it turned out the head usher was stealing thousands of dollars a week from the church and when he finally got caught, um, the church had a business meeting. It was a Baptist church because you can't do anything without a vote in a Baptist church. So they had a business meeting and, and somebody said, I, you know, I, um, I think we should vote on... Um, forgiving Harry for what he did. And there was a second, there was a motion, there was a close, and everyone voted. It was a unanimous vote. We want to forgive Harry for what he did. But Harry still went to jail. Because sometimes when you sin, you could be forgiven. But the consequences aren't always removed. Forgiveness isn't even forgetting the sins that people have committed against you. I say that because sometimes I have people come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm just really struggling with forgiving someone. They sinned against me and I just can't seem to let it go. So I'll ask them, well, did you, so was it sin? Yeah, I looked in the Bible and it was sin. So did you rebuke them? Yes, I rebuked them. Um, did they repent? Yes, they repented and, and I said I forgive them. So I'd ask, well, what's the problem? And they'll say, well, sometimes I remember what they did. I, it, I remember it. And I think, doesn't the Bible say that when you forgive someone, you forget? Which is just, first of all, no, it doesn't say that. Second of all, it's just a silly thing to think. Have you ever tried to forget something? Have you ever noticed that the harder you try to forget something, the more it's guaranteed you'll never forget that thing? I only forget the things I don't want to forget, right? But it, who for, so you can't do that. In fact, some would even argue it's, it's foolish to try to forget. It's, forgiveness doesn't mean that you never remember it. It just means you don't hold that sin against them anymore. And if you remember it, and it stirs up feelings in you, you just remind yourself, I don't hold it against them, and I don't bring it up anymore. But if someone sins and repents, again, he says, forgive them. Which always brings up the question, what if they don't repent? So we have no options if they repent. But what if they don't repent? And this is where I get in a lot of conversations with people, a lot of pushback. Because sometimes people will say to me, well, I want to forgive them, but they, they haven't repented. So I don't have to forgive them, right? Because they haven't repented. To which I would respond, the Bible never says that, ever. The Bible never says that you can't forgive them before they repent, ever. You're not going to find that. It does say if they repent, you must forgive them. But if a person doesn't repent, forgiveness can come first. Forgiveness does not have to come second. The Bible never says that. You can say to someone, you sinned against me, and I've, I've rebuked you, and you haven't repented yet, but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm here for you. When you're ready to come and work on it, I'm here for you. But in the meantime, I'm going to let it go. See, sometimes the best thing we can do is forgive first. Sometimes the only thing we can do is forgive first. If someone has sinned against you and not repented and they die, what do you do with that? You're going to hold on to that for the rest of your life? If they move away and you don't know how to get in contact with them, are you going to hold on to that for the rest of your life? See, sometimes the best thing we can do is forgive first, as opposed to becoming bitter and replaying it over and over and letting them hurt us again and again and again. Sometimes a better way to go is to forgive and let it go and give it to God. So we forgive those who repent. And here's the third thing Jesus says, and then we keep forgiving, and we keep forgiving. Like how many times will you forgive the same person for the same sin? Once a, once a month? If someone does the same sin against you 
Will you forgive them if they do it once a month, once a week, once a day, seven times a day? Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. It simply means whatever it takes. He's just saying, whatever it takes, you forgive. Now, seven times a day sounds a lot like parenting, doesn't it? Right? Like, parents, you're say like, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't hit him. Don't hit him, right? Parents, we, we rarely ever say anything once. It's been noted that the book of Proverbs is a lot like parenting. Proverbs could have been a lot shorter, but Solomon keeps bringing up the same thing over and over and over and over again. Why does he do that? Because we rarely get it right the first time. Isn't that true? For all of us, we rarely get it right the first time. When it comes to forgiving others, he's just saying this. Don't draw a line in the sand and say, I'll, get, I'll forgive you once, but that's all, or twice, that's all, or whatever that is. He says, you keep rebuking and, and you keep forgiving again and again and again and again. And when you think about it, isn't, what this, isn't this what you want from people when you sin? Don't you want people to lovingly pursue you? I, and I know it feels a little intimidating to think that, right? To think that there would be people around you who, you, who when you sin, they'll, they'll pursue you. Because sometimes we don't, we think we don't want that, but we, we need it. We need people who will pursue us, people who will pray for us, people who will, uh, who will talk to us, who will confront us, who, who will rebuke us, who will not give up, not give up on us. And we need to be that person for others. So the victim, he, he's saying here, needs to rebuke. The sinner needs to repent. And the victim is to forgive. And lastly, he tells us this, and I'm glad that he does. Now, a lot of times, when people are studying through the book of Luke, they uh, stop right there. And then they make, they make the next passage another sermon. But contextually, it all goes together. And it's important for us to understand that because it's very important what Jesus is going to say to us, which is to exercise your faith. In verses 5 and 6, it says this. So the apostle said to the Lord, so he's been sitting there and he's been teaching about forgiveness and here's their response. The apostles say, increase our faith. Sometimes people just pe teach on this passage all alone, but it's contextually, it's, it's about forgiveness. So the disciples say, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So they say increase our faith. Here's what's going on. The disciples are listening to what Jesus is saying about forgiving and forgiving seven times a day and they think, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't be that patient. I can't be that forgiving. So they say, Jesus, we're gonna need, if we're going to do this, we need more faith. Let's just be honest here, all right? And here's what Jesus says. When it comes to faith, you only need faith about the size of a mustard seed. Now, mustard seed is in incredibly small. And I think his point is this. If you have faith at all, you have faith at least the size of a mustard seed. So what he says to them is, you all have enough faith to make this happen. The, the, the quantity does not matter. A speck of faith can work miracles. Jesus is just saying this, you don't need more faith. You just need to use the faith you already have. If you're here thinking, I don't think I can forgive her. I don't think I can forgive him. He did it once, he did it twice, he did it three times. Jesus is just saying, if you have faith at all in him, then you have enough. You already have enough. You don't need to ask for more. God, give me more and in a month I'll do it. 
You can do it today. Now sometimes forgiveness takes faith. It takes faith sometimes to rebuke. Maybe you're afraid about how the person will respond. Maybe you're afraid they'll lash back. Maybe you're afraid that if you rebuke them, it'll actually make things worse. And this is where you have to exercise your faith. You do your part. And you have to trust God with the rest. And Jesus says, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted. Here's what I think he's getting at here. He's he's saying this, that a mulberry tree was known for having very deep roots that firmly held it to the ground. And the picture he's saying is this, in the same way that a tree roots itself, attaches itself to the earth, we have unforgiving natures that are deeply rooted into who we are. It's been noted that many of us find it hard to forgive from birth. And this is so deeply rooted. And we find it hard to forgive. But with faith, he says, you can say to that unforgiving nature of yours, be uprooted and be cast away from me. And Jesus says, if you have faith at all, you already have enough faith to make that happen. But sometimes we don't want it, right? Sometimes we don't want to forgive, let's be honest. Sometimes people do things to us and we think, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to let go. I want to hold on to it. I want to hold it over them. To which Jesus has the following words for us. Again, they seem like strange, hard words until you read them in the context of the passage. Here's how Jesus wraps it up. Will any one of you who has a servant, the idea is a slave, or maybe even someone you hired, who is plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table with me. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, this is heavy. Jesus is saying, "I'm, I'm commanding this. When you've done all this, just your response is you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't start here, but he does end here because he anticipates that there are going to be some people in the crowd going, I don't want to forgive. I don't want to forgive. I mean, I I agree, Jesus, in general with what you're saying, but if you knew this person, if you knew what they did, if you knew how many times they did it, you'd understand why I'm justified in not forgiving them. Jesus is just saying this, very simple. If you belong to me, this is how you must live. Are you with me? It's not an option. This is how you must live. In other words, what he's saying is forgiving other people in the kingdom of God is not a big deal at all. It's just normal, everyday, ordinary stuff. This isn't even the stuff you should break a sweat over. It's just automatic. Somebody posted this picture to my Facebook wall, and I don't know if it'll, I don't know, show up. Uh, this is uh, from another passage where Jesus says you forgive 70 times 7. You like that? I like that. Forgive because it's easier than math. Math is hard. Amen. I agree with that, right? See, Jesus knows all about this topic. Think about this. Do you think Jesus knows what it's like to be sinned against? Do you think Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by the people that you've loved and served and poured out your life to? Do you think Jesus knows what it's like to be physically abused, ripped off financially, lied to, rejected, mocked, scorned, beaten. How did Jesus respond to all that? Before we ever repented, he went to the cross. Jesus didn't sit around and go, well, as soon as you repent, 
Then I'll get up on the cross and die for your sin. He went to the cross first. He paid the price for our sin first. And while he was hanging on the cross and people were mocking him, laughing at him, rejecting him, what did he say? Father, forgive. Father, forgive them. Jesus' point is simple. Forgiving isn't optional. It's not spiritual extra credit. It's just ordinary, everyday, following Jesus kind of stuff. So a few questions to consider as you close. The first one is this. Who do you need to apologize to for tempting to sin? So that's all the way back. Sometimes the points in the beginning of a sermon are easy to forget, but it may be that God put someone on your heart, someone that you have, you've tempted to sin, maybe they've even gone down that road and sinned, and maybe you need to apologize to them. Maybe you need to say, you know what, I didn't mean to tempt you, but I did. I realize it now, and I'm sorry. And it might rock their world. It might change their world. It might be your kids. It might be a sibling. It might be a friend. Who do I need to apologize to? Secondly, who do I need to rebuke and love? So I always think it's funny, like most pastors that I talk to never want to tell their people to do this. There's always a fear that as soon as church is over, there'll be an all-out brawl in the foyer. <laughs> people like, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you. So notice I put in love. Who do I need to rebuke in love? This is what scripture commands us. Who is that person? Did God put someone on your heart? Maybe you're afraid to do that. That's where faith kicks in. Third question. What do I need to repent of? Maybe there's something that you need to confess to someone. Maybe they've rebuked you and you just wouldn't give in. And you need to. You need to humble yourself and take that next step in restoration. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, they re- I sinned against them and they rebuked me and I never said I'm sorry, but they, they know. They know. Yeah. You need to say it. Or maybe it's something, some way you've sinned against someone and they don't, it's never even come up. You need to bring it up and say, I did this and I'm sorry, and I repent. And number four, last question. Who do I need to forgive by faith? Who do you need to forgive? Who sinned against you, and maybe they asked forgiveness, and you just haven't been able to do it? You know, and I, I see this sometimes where people say, well, someone, you know, they sinned against me, and I rebuked them, and they said they're sorry, but I just don't know if they mean it. There's no, Jesus isn't, he's just saying forgive him. Leave it to him. Trust Christ to work out the details. Who do you need to forgive? Maybe it's someone you need to forgive who hasn't even repented yet. And that's a tough one for you. Who do you need to do that with? Let me pray for us and uh, then we're gonna close with a song just declaring to the Lord how much we need him in this.